Well, Nixon was supposedly a bit of a lightweight when he drank and became a bit uh, out of control. So their concern was that if he got into one of these Baijiu drinking situations, uh, he could really embarrass himself and by extension, the United States. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk about a counterintuitive lens through which to understand the most populous country in the world, specifically a clear liquor called Baijiu, which sells more by volume every year than whiskey, vodka, gin, rum, and tequila combined, in part because it's so central to how social life is conducted in China. Helping me understand this phenomenon is Derek Sandhouse, who wrote the 2019 book Drunk in China, Baijiu and the World's Oldest Drinking Culture. Derek is originally from Kansas, same as me, and I talked to him before moderating one of his book events in the college town of Lawrence. Derek gave me a crash course in the history and culture of Chinese alcohol, which I'll admit I knew next to nothing about, despite having visited China three times. In fact, as popular as Baijiu is, you only tend to hear about it in American media through news of the weird type roundups, such as this bit from NPR's Planet Money. Great. Do another one from just anywhere on the list. 34. 28% of people like the smell of their own urine after eating asparagus. Five, uh, Baijiu is the world's most popular spirit with 10 billion liters sold every year, almost entirely in China. Indeed, as popular as the drink is in China, Americans know next to nothing about Baijiu. It can be a bit bewildering to taste for the first time, as evidenced by this admittedly over-the-top YouTube clip entitled Barstool Sports Tries the Worst Alcohol Ever Distilled. This is not good. Somehow the Chinese never really figured out how to do it well, because this shit is vile. It almost tastes like um, like vodka mixed with a bouquet of flowers mixed with devil jizz. Okay, all right, well. That's the worst fucking thing I've ever drank in my life. It, it, it tastes like, like I just licked the fucking ground of the Home Depot flower section. Now, as with all viral YouTube content, these opinions are performative and exaggerated, though in the interview I cut in some BuzzFeed clips that take a similarly dim view of Baijiu. But as Derek points out, part of the challenge in trying Chinese liquor for the first time is simply getting accustomed to the unfamiliar taste. Baijiu also comes with its own rituals, since it's typically consumed with food using a formal protocol of toasts at group meals. Drinking Baijiu is in fact a window into understanding Chinese culture, and it has collective nuances that can be hard for individualistic Americans to appreciate. Derek and I actually took a look into the long history of the drink as we unpack the mystery of its appeal, and he shares some of the more famous historical encounters Americans like Ernest Hemingway and Richard Nixon had with Baijiu. Derek also talks about his efforts to introduce Baijiu to the American market and the challenges that that entails. As usual, this episode is sponsored by Airtrex, which is a great way to save money on round-the-world and multi-stop flight itineraries. Check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com and plug in your dream trip to see what I'm talking about. This podcast is also sponsored by Tortuga, which makes backpacks and backpack accessories for the vagabonding traveler. Go to rolfpots.com slash tortuga to see a selection of their travel packs. And if you see something you like, that rolfpots.com slash tortuga address will automatically qualify you for 10% off the price of your order at checkout. All right, here's Derek Sandhouse and I talking about how you can come to better understand the culture of China through a wildly popular Chinese liquor called Baijiu. One thing that interested me about your book is, one, 
uh, I'd never really heard of Baijiu. I've been to China a couple times without really knowing about Baijiu. And I think this is normal, is that we have this very strong sense for Chinese food as Americans. And then we go to China and we discover food is so much more amazing than we thought because there's so much complexity happening in China. But somehow I managed to go to China with not only not drinking Baijiu, but not even really knowing what it was. And I don't think this is too much of an oddball thing. And so let's talk about it first in the context of travel, because I think some of my travel listeners will be excited that like the most commonly drank spirit in the world is something that nobody really knows about outside of China. And so for that hipster demographic of my, <laughs> of my travel listeners, they can actually be the cool person who knows about something that is common yet sort of obscure by Western standards. And so how did you discover Baijiu? So I think your experience isn't uh, too uncommon. If you're just visiting the sites in China, if you're going out to restaurants and you're drinking, but you're doing it as a tourist, you're not doing it with the local community, you're unlikely to encounter it because there's a notion, um, just like every time you go out to eat spicy food in China, the waiter will ask you if you can eat spicy food or not. Uh, because the presumption is that foreigners cannot. Um, the same holds true for Baijiu, where most of the time they think that this is a drink that Chinese like, but the rest of the world doesn't like. So they're not going to offer it to you, usually unless you ask for it. Um, but if you're living there, uh, as I was for several years, and you're going out to business meetings, if you're going to weddings, uh, communal holiday celebrations, there's always Baijiu at these events. And it's always served with food, and there's usually a whole bottle that they open the lid and throw the lid away because you have to drink an entire bottle at least. Um, and you put that bottle in the center of the table, and while you're eating, uh, people will pour little tiny shot glasses in front of you, and you drink it, um, not by yourself, but always uh, communally. Uh, someone has to make a toast, and then you meet the toast and you all drink together. So it's kind of a very fun, nice communal way to drink, but uh, Baijiu uh, can be very strong. Uh, the flavors in Baijiu can be... Um, a little off-putting sometimes to people who have never tried these drinks before. Well, I'll jump in on that because I was sure. doing my research uh, before I read your book that literally there's like a BuzzFeed video of Americans drinking Baijiu and, and commenting on it. It comes out like a cleaning product. This is Chinese Everclear. Oh God, oh my God. It smells like someone farted on like some fruit roll-ups. Here we go, Baijiu! <laughs> ah! Oh! Oh! Oh my god! Oh god! What's, Jesus Christ, no! It tastes like poison. It's like a divorce in my mouth. Now I'm sure they're being a little bit mean. You know, it was a BuzzFeed video, but then I read your book and you said that it's sort of, it can be like a banana soaked in turpentine or a Jolly Rancher mixed with paint thinner. So, so, um, what does it taste like and is it, is it off-putting? Yeah, I think one of the things that happens oftentimes, and it happened to me too, I'm not going to deny it. So the descriptions that you're talking about are my comments coming into this topic and not really knowing what I was dealing with or what I was experiencing. And I think a lot of times when people encounter flavors that they haven't 
had or combinations of flavors that are unfamiliar to them, uh, the assumption that they make is because it's unfamiliar, it must be bad. There's this kind of arrogant assumption that the things we don't know or understand must be bad because if they were good, we would already know about them and understand them. Um, so Baijiu, uh, it's not just one drink, it's actually a family of drinks. And it basically means something akin to liquor in uh, the Chinese context. So every part of China, just as they have their own food, they have their own drinks. And those drinks are kind of tailor-made to be paired with the food from that region. So um, if you're just tasting it on its own, you're only kind of getting, you know, the, the left speaker when you need to be hearing things in stereo. Um, it's meant to be going with a lot of different flavors and complementary so, flavors. So to be clear, this isn't a, a swagger into the bar, put your shoulder, your elbow on the on, and order a shot type drink. It's actually meant to be drunk in restaurants. It's it's a it's a it's a spirit, but it's meant to be had with food. You don't normally do baijiu shots. Correct. And in China, there's this uh, notion that to have a good meal, a balanced meal, a healthy meal. You need lots of different flavors on the table. You need lots of different textures. You need lots of different colors. You need to have um, both kind of vibrancy, but also balance throughout these things. And they view um, liquor and alcohol generally as a part of that, you know, uh, palette of flavors. So without the alcohol, you're not having a fully realized meal. And um, by extension, it's not a healthy meal. And by extension, you, for eating this incomplete meal, are an unhealthy person. So, you know, there is a concept of drinking as uh, like a kind of holistic part of health. Well, I want to get more into that Chinese idea of health and then also the ritual that, that Baijiu takes during a meal as well. Um, but first, I'm curious to know about you warming to it because you use sure. the number, well, you know, when we're kids, we don't necessarily like beer the first time we drink it or even coffee. Right. And then you point out almost in that context that there's sort of a 300 shot rule to buy Joe, that you sort of, you have to develop a relationship with it just by, just by gritting it out and getting used to it. Sure. So... Um, this was an idea that was proposed to me by a friend, uh, this idea of a taste threshold that, you know, takes five or ten drinks um, of coffee or beer when you first start drinking these things. You, most people across the board don't like the flavors of coffee or beer the first time they try it, but five or ten drinks later, they start developing a taste and eventually they grow to like this thing that they once didn't like. So a friend told me, I have no idea where he got this notion, that it took 300 drinks of Baijo in order for you to gain an appreciation for it in a similar manner. So this was kind of a hook that I used um, to kind of motivate myself when I started writing about Baijo to say, um, I'm going to drink 300 shots of this stuff, and I don't like it very much now. I was very much in that camp of thinking it tastes weird or gross or strange. Um, but I am going to train myself to like this by drinking 300 shots. Um, luckily, I don't believe that to be true today. I think what it really requires um, 
like anything that is kind of mysterious and hard to get into, uh, you just need someone to show you, you know, this is a good baijo for someone who has never had baijo before. While we're sort of working our way into familiarity with the taste and preparation and ritual of, of baijo, give me some stats on how popular it is because I was amazed by, is it like four of the top five distilleries are, are, are by, in the world are baijo distilleries and they like, you could fill like certain lakes with baijo. That's how much <laughs> is drank every year. So give us a sense for just how, you know, China has what, 1.3 billion people? That's correct, an awful lot of people. An awful lot of people, but baijo is so central to the way that they drink that a lot of baijo gets consumed every year. Give us some numbers to help us understand that a little bit. Sure, so I think, um, I'm gonna round up here a little bit, but I think, as of 2018, the official statistics of the Chinese government said that about uh, 10 billion liters of baijiu were produced and consumed in China in the year 2018. So um, to put that number in context, that is um, about four times as much um, volume as uh, whiskey is produced around the globe every year. Or more than whiskey and vodka combined. And those are the second and third most popular spirits in the planet. So a huge, huge amount of baijiu is produced and I would say 99.9% um, .9 of the baijiu that is produced is consumed in China and East Asia. Um, and within China, about 99% of all of the uh, liquor that is consumed there is going to be baijiu. Can you go to China and say that you know China without having had baijiu? Like how important is it to the experience of someone who goes to China? Can you be in China for a month and have zero shots of baijiu and say that you've been to China? There's hundreds of millions of people in China who go their entire lives without drinking any alcohol. Um, it's uh, a very, very important and relevant uh, part of Chinese celebration and social and business life, but it's not the only way to experience China. And I certainly wouldn't suggest that someone who doesn't like drinking alcohol start drinking alcohol just to experience baijiu. Well, let's, I wanna get into the rituals of baijiu because it's, it's a more ritualized and sort of culturally directed drink than how we see alcohol, as I understand it. But first I wanna know, how did you end up in China and how did your baijiu journey begin? Sure, so I ended up in China in 2006. I had graduated uh, from university the year before. I was out in uh, Waltham, Massachusetts and I had plans with my uh, girlfriend at the time and now wife uh, that we were going to go to graduate school in Germany. We had both studied German in uh, college and we both applied for a government uh, full ride scholarship to study there. And what happened was she got into the university but did not get the scholarship and I got the scholarship but I didn't get into the university. So neither of us had what we needed to move to Germany. So we thought we would go somewhere else. And we had some friends that we worked with 
who had moved to China to teach English. And uh, I asked them, what do you think about China? How is that as a place to live? And they said, yeah, it's great. Just come on over. You'll find a job. Uh, you'll love it. And so we rolled the dice. Neither was speaking a word of Chinese. And uh, found jobs, uh, got on airplanes, spent a year or so teaching English. Uh, neither of us really liked it, but we did really, really love China. So we ended up staying in Shanghai for about five years. And um, during that time, she got into media and later applied for and became a diplomat for the United States. And I got into publishing and started writing books about Chinese history while I was over there. We found out right after she ended about a month of training at the State Department that they wanted her to go to Chengdu, which is the capital of Sichuan province in southwest China. So at this point, um, I had quit my job in Shanghai. Um, I had just finished the book I was working on at, before we moved, and I needed something, you know, kind of to distract myself. So like many unemployed men, I started drinking and turned it into... Uh, kind of a research project at first that morphed into one and later two books. And now um, I am a proud co-owner of a Baijiu brand. Yeah, well, I want to get to the idea of sort of convincing Americans to drink it. Sure. Uh, but um, first, I'm curious about your journey through China. Now, ending up where you did in Chengdu, that sort, that's a very big Baijiu place, right? Isn't like 70% yeah, yeah. of the country's Baijiu is produced there? Well, it was an idea, even when I was living in Shanghai, because I would go to these business meetings where you would get served Baijiu until, you know, you were pretty tipsy, weren't having a great time. And I would was toying with this idea to try to find an answer to the question, why is this drink so popular here? And none of the you know expats I know living in China seem to enjoy drinking it. What was it about uh, this drink and China more generally that you know what what did they know that I didn't know? Um, and I thought that that would be a fun question to explore in a in a longer form work. Um, but it wasn't until I got to Sichuan, and right after I got there, um, I kept meeting people who worked in the Baijiu industry, because as I later learned, uh, about 70% of all the liquor distilled in China uh, comes from this one province, and the style of Baijiu that they make there, uh, which is called Strong Aroma Baijiu, is the most popular liquor in all of China. And today is made throughout the entire country. So it really was a good place to kind of ground myself, to learn about the topic, and to meet a lot of people who were making it and who knew a lot more about Chinese alcohol and drinking culture than I did at the time, uh, who could uh, teach me. So that's where I started. And then from there, I decided, you know, you can't really know much about uh, anything in China if you're just in one place because so much of the country and so many of the different regions um, have really long histories and cultures that kind of developed in isolation from one another. So 
Um, China, it's about uh, the same size as continental Europe. And you can make an argument that different regions of China have as distinct uh, cultures as different countries in Europe. So I wanted to travel to all of the major alcohol-producing regions in the country. I went to places where they make rice wine. I made, went to places where they made different types of baijiu. I went to places where they had the first um, you know, grape, modern grape wineries in China and the first uh, uh, beer breweries in China and just tried to learn as much as I could about the different types of alcohol and the different drinking cultures in different parts of the country to try to wrap my head around the topic. It's an interesting premise for a book that could be classified as travel because I think a lot of travel books involve somebody following in the footsteps of a historical traveler or someone investigating other cultural nuances where you literally drank your way around China. So um, just so we can get some context here, Tell us about the Baijiu ritual. As I understand it from your book, it involves toasts. It's not really a thing where everybody has their own type of alcohol. Basically, everybody's drinking from the same bottle. When a toast happens, everybody drinks at the same time. Toasts are sort of expected to be reciprocated, which means every shot is a double in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so just so we get a sense, and in fact, some of the epigrams in your chapters are like, he who is sober has no friends and, a, a, you know, a, <laughs> A thousand glasses is too few to, to drink with friends. And so it seems it's a very uh, enthusiastically boozy ritual. So give us a sense for what a baiju uh, fueled dinner is like. Sure. And uh, for me, one of the great joys of this uh, project uh, coming from a more like history background was uh, tracing these rituals over time. So um, the earliest the documented religious rites in China are rituals in which people would make sacrifices of alcohol to gods or spirits. And the idea was that by presenting good, good alcohol or good wine to the spirits, you uh, showed your respect for them. And so over time, these rituals became more secularized. And people began making the same presentations, what we would call toasts today, um, to each other. And so there's these kind of two threads that run throughout um, Chinese drinking. One is you drink to uh, pay respects, to kind of strengthen bonds between people um, or strengthen bonds between people and the gods and spirits. Um, and the second is uh, for transcendence, to achieve a different state. Um, they, in, in the ancient world, they thought by drinking, uh, you stepped into the spirit realm and that you actually transformed your reality. Whereas uh, today, I think we just like that nice, happy feeling that you get when you've uh, had the right amount of baijiu, but not, not too much necessarily. Um, and so what's happened with, with these rituals um, today is uh, there are rules that go back thousands of years that dictate every part of the drinking process based on um, mostly Confucian uh, philosophy um, that dictate where you sit at the table, um, how much you drink, when you drink, um, what kinds of things you say to each other when you make a toast. Um, are, can, are travelers sort of given tips on this? Like, um, 
Not really. No, I think mostly um, if you have someone who's a kind host, they will kind of hold your hand while you're going through this ritual the first time. But uh, it just happens, and you're expected to figure it out sooner or later. Um, so to my listeners who, are, who might go to China and find themselves at a dinner, can, they can just roll with it and, and hope for the best? Well, I think there is a presumed level of ignorance um, for foreigners in China that uh, most people will be, I think, a lot more tolerant of people who don't understand uh, how to comport oneself at the dinner table. There are a number of times um, in my own drinking experience where I didn't get something and the person I was sitting next to just, you know, whispered to me, you know, this is when this happens and you should be doing this. Um, and and it, it's helpful that way. But one thing um, to know about this drinking culture that um, makes it, I think, a lot wilder today than it might have been historically is that all of these rules and rituals originated in a time when people were primarily drinking uh, non-distilled uh, alcoholic beverages. So, so weaker. Weaker, much weaker. So like, you know, four or five times weaker. So this notion that you're going to, you know, drink several bottles with your friends over dinner, um, you would be consuming a much lower quantity of alcohol you know, a few hundred years ago um, at one of these banquets than you probably would be today. So um, you have a lot, I would say, uh, higher levels of drunkenness. And these, these uh, dinners can get a lot rowdier um, than they might have at one point. But you, you do also have stories from uh, Chinese classical literature that uh, do have people reaching uh, levels of staggering drunkenness uh, in the pre-Baijo world. So, is, is this, Do you mention the seven sages? That, like, there's, yes, yes. There is some, some like, institutional drunkenness happening there. Sure. So um, there's this period between the um, the Han and the Tang dynasty. Um, I forget the exact year, but this would have been like probably like fourth or fifth, maybe even sixth century A.D. Um, when there was this group of bureaucrats in kind of uh, anarchic time in Chinese history, who basically decided that there wasn't really a credible government to serve. Um, so they, drawing on a lot of uh, kind of Taoist philosophy of becoming one with nature, they went out into the woods, uh, Henry David Thoreau style, and just got blind drunk all the time. And the, the, their idea was that by losing the self, by getting to these levels of uh, drunkenness, you would forget all of the rules that society put upon you, and you would be the person that you actually were underneath. Um, so many of them, uh, I'm sure their drunkenness today is somewhat exaggerated because they left behind some truly extraordinary poetry. And I think later generations have attributed drinking prowess to them that might be exaggerated, but, but who knows? Um, uh, so yeah, the seven sages of the bamboo grove are uh, famous along with the Tang dynasty poets, the, uh, who are known as the uh, eight immortals of the wine glass as being 
some of the foremost poets and drinkers of their time. I'll put links to this in the show notes so that anyone who wants to know their historical, their heroic drunks of China can, can learn more. Now, how has alcohol changed China? How has China grown alongside alcohol? Because you, you, one of the assertions or observations is that maybe agriculture was started not because the tribes people stopped to grow food, but because they stopped to grow grains for booze. So since you wrote the book on it, how would you say that uh, alcohol has made China what it is? So the story that I tell in this book um, is one that comes from a man named uh, Patrick McGovern, who uh, works at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. And he's an archaeologist that actually analyzed some of the earliest pottery shards uh, found in China at a place called uh, Jahu, which is in modern-day Hunan province. And these were things taken from tombs, uh, these kind of ritualized burial mounds where we think people were buried with the things that were most important to them. There's instruments in there, there's jewelry, um, but in these jars, by analyzing them, he was able to find that they contained a trace of alcohol, uh, a man-made alcohol, and it's the oldest man-made alcohol discovered, um, I think, anywhere on the planet at this point in time. Um, and so what this alcohol was made of uh, was a few things. It was um, hawthorn fruit, uh, grapes, honey, and rice. And the rice is really interesting for um, looking at the development of Chinese agriculture because rice obviously later became a major staple crop of China and other East Asian countries. But the rice that was used in this alcohol was wild, um, uh, non-domesticated rice. So the, the belief is that the Chinese started drinking rice before they were ever eating it. They began planting it uh, because it was such an important ingredient in their alcohol. So uh, China reached a level of sophistication in alcohol production that was, I'd say, well beyond almost anywhere in the world very early on. And um, at various points in Chinese history, um, the taxes that this alcohol would bring to the state were one of the most, if not the most, important uh, source of income for the government. So uh, you have another argument to make that as the country was developing, um, alcohol became a matter of uh, survival for the civilization itself. This is a drink that um, has not really taken hold in the United States at all. Yet people have been going to China for a long time and encountering it. And you have an interesting story about Ernest Hemingway and an interesting story about Richard Nixon. Sure. So what's the, what's the short version of like travel writing and, and, and Western cultural accounts of people going to China and drinking Baijiu? Sure. So one of the things uh, you mentioned earlier in the interview that um, a lot of people doing travel writing try to follow in the footsteps of other people. And while I didn't have one inspiration, I'll say I had many inspirations of uh, visitors to China who had been uh, very excited by or repelled by the local drinks. 
and also trying to go to places um, where some of the great Chinese drinkers had had their um, revelatory experiences like as well. Like the poets. Like the poets, for right. example, yeah. And um, there are countless uh, stories. Um, if you look back to the earliest people who may have tried Baijiu in China, uh, there's uh, William of Rubric who traveled to China, I think in the 14th, early 14th century, if I'm remembering correctly, there was... Uh, if, they, if they gave medalists to travel writers from that era, he'd be the silver medalist behind Marco Polo, I think. Marco Polo is another person who has something that is very close to what might be a mention of Baijo. Again, we don't know because he talks about how um, the, the, the wines of Cathay being uh, made very hot, and so they're very strong and very delicious. And um, both of them, I think, uh, compare Chinese wines favorably to what is being produced in Europe at the same time. So uh, both of these early visitors to China from the West thought uh, Chinese had uh, exceptionally good uh, baijiu. I'm, I'm curious to know, though, about the Hemingway and Nixon stories, um, because Nixon sounds like that was sort of a happy ending story. Um, sure. And then and Hemingway, I forget, did he drink his compa companions under the table or did they drink him under the table? Okay, so when you're talking about Hemingway in China, you're looking at a story where he was a wartime correspondent during World War II and he was doing interviews with Chiang Kai-shek um, down in uh, Chongqing and going to visit the front with Japan. So when he was going out there, you had these real men's men, uh, army officers who he was drinking with, and they thought that they were going to put this foreigner who didn't know how to drink under the table, not realizing that they were dealing with uh, perhaps the most famous Western drinker of the 20th century, and uh, many of these stories end with um, people passing out on the floor, um, the hosts saying that they ran out of alcohol and needed to stop. Uh, just these hilarious situations in which um, everyone, I think, had a more or less good time, but uh, had clearly underestimated uh, the drinking prowess of a uh, fairly famous alcoholic. He must have liked it. I, I think he did. Um, it's hard to tell how much someone that drinks that much um, savors the alcohol versus how much they need the alcohol. Um, and then with Nixon, uh, it was a situation where the um, State Department, uh, when Nixon was negotiating with China to do his big uh, landmark visit in 1972, they had actually wired ahead and told the White House that under no circumstances was Nixon to drink Baijiu while he was over there because I think their fear was that the Baijiu was way too strong and Nixon um, was not a very... Um, well, Nixon was supposedly a bit of a lightweight when he drank and became a bit uh, out of control. So their concern was that if he got into one of these Baijiu drinking situations, uh, he could really embarrass himself and by extension the United States. 
luckily for us and for history, um, when uh, the premier of China, Zhou Enlai, when he made a toast at the welcome dinner to Nixon, uh, Nixon did return the toast and thereby um, paid his respect to his host in China. And this is an event that is really um, was kind of a landmark in U.S.-China relations. It paved the way for reopening relations and uh, creating diplomatic channels for China just a few years later. The shot heard around the world, as it were. Indeed. <laughs> it feels like the, the Baijiu ritual in China is so specific. Can it be Americanized or will it turn to a cocktail culture or will it be a pound the bar and get a shot of Baijiu type thing? Yeah, like I said, our, our challenge is twofold. Not only do we have to introduce the individual drink that my company is selling, um, Ming River Sichuan Baijiu, wherever fine drinks are sold, and uh, we have to build the category. We have to teach people what Baijiu is, how is it consumed in China, and what are, you know, what can people find within this category? What are the differences between different styles of baijiu which which is as varied as vodka to tequila right that absolutely there's not just baijiu isn't just a clear spirit there's a lot of variations right some baijiu is really light and mild like a vodka some baijos are very thick fragrant pungent uh, umami uh you know you get like mushroom flavors out of some you get pineapple flavors out of others um it can taste like all sorts of things um, so, so that's, that's an educational challenge. There are so many challenges, but what I keep coming back to is this idea that it's a good drink. Um, I've spent many years exploring this category, trying the different products made by different distilleries, and I really, really believe in the quality of the drink itself, that there is a lot of value there, and there's a lot of uh, flavors and experiences that you can get out of this category that you aren't getting out of other things that are currently served in the average international bar. So there is value there. Um, the challenge is communicating that value to people, making sure that they understand why it's special. Uh, it's not going to be for everyone. Most people in this country drink hard liquor uh, mixed into cocktails. They don't drink hard liquor with their food at dinner time. So there, there's the cocktail space and the food space, and they don't really intersect in, in, in our world. So keeping in mind that for many of my listeners, this is probably a crash course on a drink that they didn't even know about before they started listening to this. Of course. Well, where does a, um, for example, American, since many of my listeners are American, where, where do we start? Where, how does one um, start dipping one's toes into the water of, of Baijiu. So uh, if you can't go to China, that's obviously the best place to go, but it's uh, not an expense. <laughs> obviously, China is the best place to start your journey, but um, obviously that's a very expensive drink. Um, so what I would recommend is if you can't go to China, start in Chinatown. If your city has a Chinatown, and they have a liquor store in Chinatown, the odds are better than not that that liquor store will have a sizable Baijiu selection with 10, 20, 30 Baijiu's. 
and um, not to plug my own work, but my last book, Baijiu, uh, The Essential Guide to Chinese Spirits. Um, if you really want to like teach yourself about Baijiu, I designed it as something that could be a starting point for people who didn't know anything about Baijiu. And it has pictures of different bottles. It has the names in English and Chinese. Uh, and the way I designed it was so that you could read through, find which products you were interested in, and then just go to a Chinatown liquor store or go to a liquor store in China and point and say, this is what I want. And the person could read the Chinese if they don't, if they don't speak English and they could find something, if not that product specifically, something similar. So you could uh, kind of figure it out that way without having to go through the trouble of learning Chinese. Last question or last query. Make the case for Baijiu. Why will drinking or trying or embracing Baijiu enhance the listener's life? Well, I think the most important thing to know about Baijiu, particularly for people who want to live in or visit China, is that this is kind of the glue that holds Chinese social life together. When you go out with your friends, and you go out to dinner, you're going to have Baijiu on the table. And if you can develop an appreciation or at least get around an aversion to Baijiu, um, you're going to be able to participate in social life in a way that doesn't always keep you at a distance from the people who live in China. So um, I think if you're going to spend time in China um, and you want to get to know the people there and do things on their terms, uh, you, you should make the effort and learn about that. Now, if you're not going to China and you are just maybe going to a Chinese restaurant, um, Baijiu's delicious. It can bring out a lot of the flavors in spicier Chinese dishes that you might not have known were there. And vice versa, the Chinese food is going to make the Baijiu a much more uh, enjoyable drinking experience. So um, just as when you go to the Greek restaurant, you have Uzo, or you go to the Japanese restaurant and you order some sake, yeah, try ordering a Baijiu at the Chinese restaurant. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Derek Sandhouse's book, Drunk in China, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>